Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark for another episode of Wuxia Workshop. Today we're going to be talking about Legendary Weapons of China, a 1982 Lao Kar Lung film. This is set during the Boxer Rebellion, and it stars Lao Kar Lung, Xiao Ho, Alexander Fu Sheng, Kara Hui, Gordon Liu, uh, among many others. And, uh, you know, uh, we're just going to dive right into it. I've seen this movie before. I think I've even reviewed it on on the channel in fact joel remind me to give this uh podcast a very different file name so that i don't overwrite the old one when i post it up uh but this was your first time watching it so i just wanted to get your reaction okay so this is the first movie that you've recommended to me there i genuinely was baffled on the first viewing like i watched the whole thing and when it ended i was like I must have missed something. It felt like there was a real missing almost, or like there was more that should have happened. And I, I rewatched it, and on the second viewing, it was a lot more comprehensible. But it's got a very unusual, not bad, just very unusual and surprising story structure. Um, so that's that's that was my biggest impression from it. And the second secondary thing, I'm actually kind of ashamed. This is a secondary thing. This is some of the best fighting I've seen so far in Wuxia films, and like that's saying something because like. None of the fighting has been bad so far. This is just another level, though. Yeah, this so is my twin reaction. Is this your first Lao Kar Lung movie? Do you know? I think so. Okay. Uh, like, because really, I've been watching pretty much only the things you recommend. Because I want to like, I want to go into this as kind of new as mm. possible. So, if this is the first you recommended, then yeah, this is the first one I've seen. Okay, so this is. He's got a very u- unique style that is grounded in sort of real kung fu. Uh, I mean, he takes liberties, but it's it's it, it definitely, you know, he can, not only does he convey the movements like uh, more realistically, but the way that they're filmed, you probably notice that. Like, you really get it. Like, and sometimes it almost looks old fashioned because of that, because he really get, he does these wide shots where you see everything a lot. Um, but you get you get to see all of the actors' movements, and and in a way, this film almost feels to me like it's structured around the fight sequences. Um, which isn't yeah. that uncommon in a movie, but but you re, you know because the the fight sequences can be so lengthy, it's sort of you know you really you really tend to notice it. Um, but I was curious how you thought the what, what you mentioned the story structure. What was it about the story structure? If you can put your finger on it, which isn't always easy to do. Okay, yeah. okay. and like I was actually thinking about this earlier. I was like, okay, what was it about this structure that was so awkward for me? Here, here's what it feels like. I'm really used to the kind of traditional Western storytelling of, of the three-act structure, yeah. where it's very clearly this is the introduction, this is the, the, the mounting tension, and there's the conclusion. I have a denouement afterwards. But, like, that's, the, that's what I'm used to. I think what was unique about this one is it felt like it began in the middle of one story and in its first act. In its second act, it ended that story. In its third act, it began a new story, and its culminary act was the middle of that next story. Okay. So it's like they actually kind of got a different slicing to a very similar kind of structure. And I think that's what was awkward about it. Because, like, right in the middle of the movie, they, they have a bunch of characters that I, I love, like the actor characters. And as a matter of fact, I wrote down their names, which is uh, unique for me. Uh, let's see. Are you thinking uh, of the, Alexander, Wu, the actor. Yeah, the Al- Alexander Fu Sheng character. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah. his character name was Mr. Wu, because I wrote that down. I'm like, ah, I have the subtitles on. I'm going to write that down. So I loved his character so much. He was so much fun in the movie, and he's got some really spectacular 
sort of fake fight scenes where he's not yeah. in in the context of the movie. He's not really using kung fu. He's either acting uh, with a bunch of theatrics or he's literally being puppeted by this magical puppet. And like right near the middle, uh, right at the end of that, what would traditionally be a third act, where you feel like there's more to go on with that kid. Like this seems to be like he's gotten to a, a low point with his little arc. He's gone. That's it for him. Like, they, they leave him in outhouse water, and you're like, nah, that's it, wrapping it up. And, like, th- there's a, a, a abrupt finality to a lot of characters like that. And around that same time, the, the really big, important, like, ultimate fight character, which is the uh, Liu Kang's brother, shows up, uh, Liu uh, Le Ying, who, like, okay, so he's introduced in a th- single chunk of dialogue at the very beginning of the movie, and doesn't even, he's not even there until almost the end of the third act. Yeah. And it's so, like, it's so abrupt where he comes in. And it's it's stuff like that abruptness that's so strange about the structure. Well, they do, a lot of things will move very quickly in these movies, and the structure to me, like, that that scene with Alexander Fushung and sort of the, they're sort of like a traveling troupe of con artists, I guess. uh, Yeah, they're great. And and we can talk about that scene, because that's very interesting. But that always seemed to me kind of like a a complication of the overall plot. That's sort of how I viewed that scene. And also a a chance for him to highlight a really interesting concept, a a guy who, like you said, doesn't know martial arts, but is a con man and is, and is, is capable of convincing a crowd that he knows martial arts so that he can masquerade as this character and there's a lot to talk about there um but but i again i'm not an academic i don't you know i i, I don't I, I just watch these movies but something i've noticed as well is that they don't adhere to the three-act structure and what i've heard is that there may be more of like a four-act structure at times this felt like there were four yeah. distinct acts um and also, one thing that I notice a lot in these movies and in the books, not all the books, but many of the books that I've read that have been translated uh, from from this genre and related genres, is there's more of an, a willingness to, to sort of, uh, you know, we say show, don't tell. I mm-hmm. don't think that that is a rule. Uh, you know, it's not a stylistic restraint. And so you see it a lot in the scenes where the two brothers are confronting each other and he just fully explains everything that in an, in an, in an American movie might've been another 30 minutes of material that you would have seen on screen earlier in the film. Do you know what I mean? Like they sort of, you know, he, he sort of explains his big plot to him in, in, in a very clear, concise way. Um, oh, yeah. I, I wasn't prepared for that level of, uh, uh, and it is clear. It is clear. Like it, you're right. There's no ambiguity to the explanation. But you're, I'm primed as an American viewer to to want to see or to expect that kind of like foreshadowing and character yeah. introduction to happen earlier. Like and and you could have still made it extremely abrupt to a Western audience if you had shown the character when he was first mentioned instead of just mentioning him. Because they were like, oh, that guy hasn't been here since the introduction to the movie, and that still would have been reasonably abrupt. This feels almost like. Like, I was totally blindsided by it on a first viewing. I was like, who the hell are you? Because I didn't write down the name. Yeah. But but because his name has distinctiveness to me, because I wrote it down in that first scene, in that second viewing, when he came back in that, I, I immediately noticed the, like, they have the same surname. Because in, in China, the surname's first, and it's Lei. So I was like, oh, okay, that's that's why that's why he's like, I've got my three assassins on it. Lei Young, Tian Hao, and Ti Tan. And I was like, okay, so they show Tian Hao... Uh, immediately, like they show him in that scene, but T10 doesn't show up until like the next scene, and they don't name him in that scene. He's just a bald, 
cool tatted martial art guy, you know? You don't get that he's T-10 until, like, way deeper into the movie. Like, you don't get him name-dropped. So his identity is a lot more cloudy when if you don't, like if you don't pick up on the the subtleties, yeah, I think they the, mention his name. Like they'll mention names really quickly during the film, and you won't notice it until you see the movie again. That oh, this mm. is the guy they were talking about in that scene. Oh, or, that's and I thought I thought the Gordon Liu character was was one of the best in the movie. He's sort of the classic sort of uh, almost like a, a a masked killer type character where he's just in the he's just kind yeah. of looming in the background. You know he's important, but you don't know what he's fully capable of until. He really, you know, unleashes uh, all of his abilities in that in that confrontation. They sold me on that character. Like I'm, I'm with you on that one because his first scene, he's like, "It's okay, shoot me," and he's like doing this crazy martial arts stuff. And then when he shows up, it, it doesn't. There's not a big gap between him showing up again, and he's like masquerading as this hyper intense monk guy with like this Buddhist statue thing on his back. But there's this great visual link because the same prayer strips that he puts over the the bullet wounds on all of the people that get shot in that first scene are the same ones he has in that little Buddha statue. And like, so as soon as that goes on screen, it's right in the middle of the screen. You're like, there is some shit going to start with that little Buddha statue. Something going to happen. And they pull it off when he does fight. So cool. Oh, my God. You know, there's there's a lot of like little cool devices planted. That that that, that that reveal themselves over the course of the combat, um, and and that gets to the theme. You know, obviously, the theme of the movie is sort of this idea of the 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 society, the boxer society. They uh, they think that they're immune to bullets, and that's what's fueling a lot of this. And the main character, uh, La Car Lung's character, is Uncle Yu, but his real name is um, is uh, Le Gong, and and he he headed a branch and he was supposed to he was sort of supposed to expand them in this region and he didn't want to see his pupils get killed by bullets so he he disbanded and everybody went into hiding and now all of the characters that we're meeting that we're talking about they've been sent to kill him basically and so there's there's a bunch of them and all of them but one are fully committed to this idea of killing him and that's kind of the interesting thing about it you you have the 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 society sends out like three or three or four assassins basically and and uh and 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 one of them is uh you see early on i guess we can spoil it uh because you know we we can't do this without without uh without spoiling it but i think uh, we already spoiled it like (laughs) kind of kind of um but the karahui character is uh is or very early on you see that she's not um uh that she's very troubled that they're that they're that the immunity to bullets yeah. thing isn't working, and so yeah, uh, Fan Sha Ching is her name in the in the thing, and like yeah, first scene she's introduced, like in this pure like facial acting, she doesn't say anything. They they show the the guys the pugilist getting shot and then falling over and dying, and her face is just this mask of worry, like oh my god, what yeah. are we doing? This is terrible, and and so when you see her later on, quote unquote, disguised as a man, which I that's got to be one of those like stage whisper kind of disguises where it's not supposed to fool the audience because like holy hell i would never mistake her for a man but whatever um that's pretty common in the shot you'll see a lot of you know you know a lot of that comes from too that they uh that before before like the new wave of wuxia films in the mid 60s a lot of the wuxia movies featured uh female leads because the audience was primarily female 
and as a result, you know, they would have female actresses playing the hero, and they would they would be playing men, but you could tell that they were women. Do you know what I mean? And so that yeah, that's, that felt like a theater holdover, yeah. and like it's not like the Western uh, cinema is immune to theater holdovers. We have stage whispers in movies nowadays. Yeah. And it's just like every time I, I see one, it reminds me of my, I've got a friend, Nick, who's an actor. And when they do a stage whisper, it's like it's a theater stage whisper. So it's really exaggerated. Yeah. And stage whispers in movies always feel hyper exaggerated, man. Like, wow, that's really pretty obvious there. Mm. Yeah, um, it is, so, it's yeah. become a trope in the genre at this point. Yeah, like, it does. Like you, even in uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, they had that scene. You know, that was that was clearly playing to that trope where she's in the mm. inn and she's dressed as a as a man. Um Oh but, yeah, we should probably talk about that movie at some point too. I haven't watched that one since it came out. Um, like everyone made a huge deal about it, and like I watch it and I'm like, yeah, this all makes sense. What's the big, what's the big deal? Oh, I, I have to say, I really liked that movie when it came out. It had a, it had a very big impact on me. Um, you know, I, I love that it's a tragedy. Well, <laughs> that was really cool. Um, well, we can we can get into it in another episode because that's a whole yeah. that's a really complicated topic, I think, and it would it would but, derail the discussion. But, yeah, um, we need let's let's put a pin in that. Um, but uh, but I did want to revisit the Alexander Fushung uh, sequence because, number one, I was curious what your response to this. I think this is the first time you've seen him, or at least the first time you've noticed him. Uh, what, just what's your general reaction to that guy? Because everybody has a reaction to him, and it's always a little different. All right, which, which guy was that in the movie? He was the con like, man. He, he was the con man who was combing his beard when he when he first arrived. Yeah, he, he felt a little familiar. Like, I might have seen him in something mm-hmm. before. But I fell in love with him as soon as he strutted onto the stage, combing his beard luxuriously. I'm retired. I'm not even a big deal. I, I will admit that I had like a, a kung pao under the fist moment when I heard his voice because I was like, "That's the voice they decided to dub this guy with." But his character is comedic, so it's actually pretty pretty appropriate. I loved him so much. Everything he did in this movie left my jaw on the floor. Like, because not only is he straight up hilarious, like he's he's a funny like charismatic swaggering kind of character and he really pulls it off with a very genuine kind of air like he does some physical things that are just mind-blowing you're like this is like a chubby dude he doesn't seem like one of these ripped super martial artists and he's just like doing these amazing physical things so i was just like i love this guy yeah he strikes a real like he's one of these guys a lot of people uh like him and a lot of people get a little bit irritated by him when they first when they first encounter him. I was one of those people that actually got a little bit irritated by him, but he grew on me over time. And once I saw more and more of his material, like I understood the, there, he walks this very fine line. He kind of, he kind of, he sort of juggles this, uh, on the one hand, the comedy, on the other hand, the, uh, the martial arts, but it's in a way that's totally different from someone like say Jackie Chan. You know what I mean? Jackie Chan, uh, really leans heavy into the comedy and Alexander Fushung, he can get into the comedy, but he can also really go in the serious direction as well. And uh, I, I compare him like I draw a line of comparison between him and like the physical comedy of like Chris Farley or someone like that. Okay, I was going to say Jack Black or uh, um, Jim Carrey, but I, I, I can yeah, see Jim that. Yeah, Jim Carrey's a comparison too. Actually, I, I wanted to go with Chris Farley because Jim Carrey's in decent shape and Chris Farley was not, <laughs> and like. Oh. Because he doesn't have a very, like, intimidating physical presence, this guy. You know? Like, he just seems like he, he had the same kind of body I have. He's a little paunchy, and he was soft. Well, I have a feeling if we... I, I think if we saw him without his shirt on, it would it would be... Okay, it'd probably be awful. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a convincing illusion. Yeah. Yeah, it was... 
if they if he's like actually totally ripped under there, that's well, that's really good makeup. I think I think I think he's got uh, a, a chubby cheek situation going on. That uh, okay. translate to the rest. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, but but he does he do, but he definitely looks less less uh, lean than say Gordon Liu does in this film. Like you know you, you know um, so so I you know and he, and he's uh, and it is it is surprising sort of when you when you realize you know in order to to pull off the things that he's pulling off where he's he's pretending to be somebody who doesn't know martial arts who is he he still has to know the martial arts moves in order to do that like it's a it's it's a very delicate tightrope i think because in a lot of movies that does not work like you either come out thinking oh this guy totally knows how to do martial arts and he's and he's turning it down a few notches or or they or they ridiculously exaggerate their lack of martial arts knowledge and i feel like he really hits the exact right spot to make it funny yeah. and to work on screen yeah, he, he actually acts well enough to seem like a shithead, despite being extremely competent. So, yeah, I, I loved him. I loved his portrayal. I loved the character. I was I was totally taken. I don't see how you'd be annoyed by this guy. I loved him. I, I was think, just like, I think, yeah! was, I think it was the movie, one of the movies that I first saw him in was a film when it was a little bit more serious, but there was enough mugging of the camera going on that I was kind of like, hey, what's up? And I, it's like, I think it was one of those films where you kind of, you, you kind of already needed to know what he was already about. Do you know what I mean? To appreciate it, and and so it just, kind of it just character it, actor sort of role. Yeah, it just it just didn't work for me in that in that movie. But but then as I saw him in more films, I really started to like him, and it just and it just took you know more time. Um, and also, I, I gained a much bigger appreciation of his his martial arts acting, um, which I wasn't as a, as apparent in that movie. Um, but I, when I you know when I uh, when I saw just you know how good he was with that you know it it uh you know that 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 definitely helped change my opinion um he oh, yeah. actually and he actually died uh not too long after this film was made oh, no. yeah he died That's... in a car accident um mm. but uh we'll, we'll have to do more alexander fushung movies at some point yeah we should recommend another one because like in, the, in this film, actually, I wonder how much they kind of leaned into knowledge of how, how he was and what he was good at. Because they give him an excuse to be, like, the core fighter in one of the more in, interesting martial arts scenes when they're fighting at the outhouse. But they do it in such a way that it's not the actual character's knowledge. It's another master who's manipulating him with this basically magical voodoo doll. Mm. And he's he's moving in time with the voodoo doll's movements. And, he again, the martial arts he's doing in real life, even as an actor, is breathtaking but the character is still an idiot and you get to retain that kind of sense of believability so i wonder how much that was specifically written with him in mind i i don't know i would imagine it, it pretty well could have been um a, a movie we might consider doing is the brave archer series that's three movies though so that's kind of an investment but it's an investment uh, but but he's the he's the lead in that film and it's also based on the legend of condor heroes story so it's like a mm-hmm. an introduction to a very important story in the wuxia genre um, and it's, it, I, I may have to watch that, and I yeah. think I'll take that recommendation. Um, but uh, but I guess um, another scene to talk about is the toilet scene. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, so you know the the next. So we see him in that scene with the uh, in the in the in the town where he's pretending uh, he's pretending to be a martial arts master, and then when he goes to get paid at the outhouse, there's this whole sequence where the assassin uh thinks that he's the guy and so there's this big fight in the basically in the in the pool water for lack of a uh, a more gentle term 
Um, well, they, they even call it that, like in the movie. They're they're not. There's very specific about what well, that water is used for. That's where the poop goes. Well, well, there's this great. So Tian Ho shows up there to to kill him, and he, he it's it's really kind of a slapstick scene where uh where the um where where there's a, a the use of 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 Taoist magic to to take control of of Mr. Mu's body and. And the uh, the guy who's supposed to pay him, uh, Lu Yung, uh, ends up uh, controlling him with like a little voodoo doll and has him fend off the Tian Ho character. And Tian Ho spends so much time fighting in this water that for the for a good chunk of the movie after this, he's sick. Um, almost, almost all the rest. Of yeah. It. And and after he gets out of the water, he conf- he's confronted by um, by Titan, the Gordon Liu character, and Titan refuses to fight him because he smells like shit. And he says, you know, go take a bath. I'm not going to fight you yeah, now. That and I, number one, I, I like that scene, but I also I also like how much it tells us about the Gordon Liu character. You know, he's, his 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 character's personality is definitely somebody who wouldn't wouldn't lower himself to fight with somebody who's just been, you know, covered in in, in feces. Um, it was a wonderful line and well delivered too. It, it kind of played into the overall comedy of that scene in a, in a very satisfactory way. I laughed. Both times I watched it, <laughs> you're covered in poop. Go take a bath. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great. It's from this like badass assassin guy. Um, but I guess moving on to sort of the the name of the movie is the legendary weapons of China. So we get the weapons yeah. of Wushu here. Uh, did you did you like that conceit? Did you like the way that it was employed? You know, I mean, I and I know that they weren't translating the names proper. Like they would, you get the character in Chinese on the screen but then it wouldn't actually translate what the weapon name was. So a little bit of that might have been lost. Yeah, and, like, I, I understood what, what I was supposed to be, like, the information I was supposed to be getting in that scene. And they, they I think they did that same thing with certain uh, martial arts techniques, too, like, earlier in the film. I think, like, there was a certain technique they used, and they were like, this is the name of that technique. And the translator was just, like, baffled by it, I guess. Uh, but, I mean, I, I understand contextually what that's supposed to be, and I, I really kind of like that when that shows up in a movie. Uh, and you don't see that a lot in Western movies, where like they'll s- just stop and just be like, "Oh wait, audience, just so you're aware, this is what's happening. This yep. is the kind of cool weapon or technique it's being used." All right, let's keep going. And they'll do that for uh, characters too. If they're doing like a Wuxia novel, when the character, uh, you know, appears on screen, they'll have the characters for their name, uh, you know, run across it. That's neat. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I like it because like I don't have. I don't. That never takes me out of the story because I'm never not aware that I'm watching a movie yep. when I'm watching a movie. You know, so like them just being like, "Oh, and this is what this is." Okay, that well, seems clear. That's good communication. You know how I look at it. I look at it like when you go to the, a chapter in a book and there's a stylized heading or something. It's kind of yeah. that. It, yeah, it, same it, just, thing. it just gives it like a nice frame, really. In fact, if we, we really should do Brave Archer because that movie does some stuff like that in the beginning and in other portions, and that would be interesting to comment on. Um, and I have to, but, Brendan. <laughs> but uh, but I don't know. I, I thought I, I mean, uh, I, I thought it was really cool. I mean, again, it was it, it is a conceit. They are sort of like, okay, we're going to work all of these weapons into the into the movie somehow. And and, yet and I don't feel it was tortured. I, and that's the strange thing about this movie is that that's what the movie's named after. And those weapons book in the movie. The introduction is people using the weapons, and the conclusion, the epic conclusion, is people fighting with those weapons. But almost none of the movie has that as a subject matter. Like, it, it's telling its own story, and, and this kind of, like, structural conceit is, is I don't know, 
it almost like looms over the movie in, in a way that's nearly artificial. It's it's strange because like it's not a, a, a what I expected when I was going into it by the name was a, a movie that was about a struggle for some kind of legendary mythical weapons, and you immediately dispelled that. You're like, no, it's not really about that. It's about using these weapons in a, in a culturally and historically appropriate way. And they do that in the fight scenes, and they do. Um, and what I what I noticed in the second viewing is that those, those weapons, though, which I thought were just kind of a bookend for the movie, they show up. Just, like, they trickle them through the movie. This guy yeah. has this weapon. This guy uses that weapon. All through the whole thing, and then it culminates... In that giant battle where they're the the two masters are just taking weapons off, like literally taking weapons off the wall and fighting them against each other, and like looking at it that second time, I was really impressed with how much they they made the movie about those things in that sort of subtle undercurrent way, where it's not your conscious mind that's enjoying these these things coming, these elements coming into the movie. So I'm second viewing, very very impressed, and I didn't realize how well it had been structured until I got to watch it again. So I'm glad I watched it a second time. Yeah, because when Uncle Yu is sort of trying to build up his kung fu again, there's that scene where he has all of the weapons around him, and uh, and Feng Xiaoqing is sort of... She's pretending to be his instructor, basically, so that uh, Tian Hao doesn't suspect. Oh, yeah, and even before that, even before that, what outs him as... Lei Kung is the discovery of those weapons by Fen Xiaocheng. Yeah. So like they're they're there, and and your uh, your monkey brain way deep in your in your mind is like ah legendary weapons. Yeah. But I, I was not consciously aware of it, and that's that's how subtle and well constructed the film is. So I really liked that as a conceit and as a structural mechanism. I thought that was great. Also, the fights were really cool. So. And and I really like there were a lot of things I liked, but the the end finale scene is a great martial art sequence it's basically yeah. I mean, and it's basically you know one, one of the great things about lol carlung movies is he's not afraid to get in front of the camera himself and because he's you know <laughs> real you know real martial artist real fight choreographer you know, he can do amazing things and he kind of it almost feels like he really helps establish uh the standard that everybody has to rise to in the movie and and a lot of these are people that he's, you know, he's training too. So they, it really comes out in the film. I think, um, I think we'll also we'll, we'll probably want to watch some more Lao Karlung films uh, so that we so that you can get a sense of that. But um, but the other the other part of the film I like is the fact that uh, the Tian Ho character is sick for most of the movie, like deathly ill because he was you know in the 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 outhouse water and. And uh, and they really play that up, and it's it's really effective. Like when because it, it's just funny seeing this guy who's this like he's basically a living weapon. He's easy, you know. He's he's uh, he's he's kind of a mindless killer who's been conditioned to just see the mission as the thing and to believe that he's immune to all of these weapons. And and he's like shaking as he's trying to deliver the fatal blow. It's I I I, I thought that really worked. And then and then the whole thing where Uncle Yu nurses him back to health and sort of turns him by showing him, you know, that, you know, number one, that Uncle Yu is a compassionate person, but also that, you know, this whole thing that they're fighting for is is a sham. That there's... Right. It, the, the rightness of, of Lei Kung's philosophy is, is shown right there because you have a guy who has been conditioned by the society to believe he's this invincible weapon, but he's mortal, and so he gets sick, and the guy that nurses him back to health doesn't just nurse him physically back to health. 
he also like philosophically nurses him back to health by letting him realize that like hey look you're, you're mortal there's a reason I'm fighting and yeah my kung fu is better even though I, I'm shaking and I'm, I'm weak right now I recognize that weakness and in that I have strength and again that's one of those brilliant kind of subtle constructions of the movie that's just it's really impressive like from a from a character writing standpoint to see that um and it's i think it was easy for me the first time i watched it to get sidelined by how unusual the pacing was mm. and to miss those those wonderful subtle flavors second again second viewing holy hell this movie opened up and i was yeah. just so cool. impressed and wowed by its, by its structure its characterization everything it's really something else Sometimes with Al Carlung, what I've noticed, he's kind of he kind of shines a lot of times with like the slice of life style movies. We might watch a film called My Young Auntie, and you'll really see that if we watch that. But, but My Young Auntie, yeah, it's it's a really good movie. Um, but it's it's not a typical martial arts film by any stretch. It would be very hard to pin it to a particular genre. Um, but I think w- with his films. A lot of movies make you impatient because you're used to things sort of moving rapidly from one scene to the next, location to location. And he doesn't mind sort of sitting at one spot for a while oh, yeah. and letting the characters do their thing. And, you, and, uh, and, and, and I think that that's something once you get used to, then you can kind of sort of appreciate it. But initially it might be a little bit difficult if you're like real i really want them to get to the next place you know i really want them to get to the next yeah place. i think um, to some degree you're right we are conditioned to feel like story movement has a, a sort of corollary with like scenery location yeah and, and you're right whenever they get to to uh uh lu kung's just home where he's just cutting wood and stuff like that they basically plant the camera on that property and don't move yeah like that's where the rest of the movie takes place and the, again, the first time I was viewing it, I was like, are, it feels like nothing's happening. Because, the, my again, my monkey brain was like, well, why haven't they moved location? That means the time has moved forward. Yep. But in, in this case, like, you're right. Once once you kind of once you kind of recognize your own conditioning and you're able to appreciate the movie on its own merit, you understand how important it is to put all of this in his home. And, like, how, how central that is kind of to his identity. Yep. And I think, uh, and I do want to get into the gaming discussion, but one last thing yeah, worth mentioning. This movie, yeah. I could talk about this movie for a while. I was seriously impressed by this, Brendan, so like... <laughs> well, we, sh- we should talk a little bit about the Karahui character as well, because I know you noticed her when we did um, Buddha's Palm, and, uh, and you thought, you know, I, th- I think you commented on her performance there, and I was curious what, what you thought of her performance here. Uh, what, was, was she the, uh, was she Fen Chaoqing? Yes. Was that that- she was? Okay. Um, I really liked her as I as I did in Buddhist Palm. Like uh, her acting was very genuine. Her facial acting was extremely expressive. Um, she her martial arts was really good. Um, she she was really and like she played a big range in the movie because she was a capable martial artist and she was also like a person that was in disguise and doing all this stuff. And then in the end, she like. There's no classical love interest in this movie, but yeah. she has that kind of like "I'm a girl" reveal, and um, the other assassin, um, yeah, Tianho is just like "Buto, he's yeah. a girl derp." So there's a sort of like a comedy reaction yeah. moment to it, and like it comes off really genuine because she's really bouncy and and happy, and she's got like the long like ponytail, uh, like whatever you call those hair things, very very classic like Chinese feminine beauty things, and like. So she has a good range, and she's she's a fun actress, and she's really expressive. So, like, what's not to like, you know? <laughs> I think um, 
Yeah, yeah, like the Tian Ho character and her character, they could, they might be a couple at the end of this, but it's not really clear. It's, what not, the, yeah. it's not the focus um, of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not. Uh, one of the things that's kind of cool about Lo Carlong, especially if you contrast him with, say, Cheng Che, is he he likes to have more female characters in his movies, it seems, and he likes to have more of a balance, in, even just beyond the female and male of the yin and the yang. And, mm-hmm. and he, his movies, just to me, they always have an overall kind of a balanced feel. And so it's yeah, there uh, was a strong balance to this movie, I yeah. concur. Yeah. And so it's I I think that's really important when you have a physical visual performance to have that balance because you know I mean again I love Cheng Che movies and they're great but one of the you know they're 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 sometimes overwhelmingly masculine like there's just like all, <laughs> like all the movements everything is all male uh, which can be you know its own thing but having having more of a balance there's just more stuff to contrast you know what I mean there's more. There, there's more, uh, there's more uh, physical there's more options. Texture to it, yeah. yeah, it's kind of like dance. You kind of want like a, like if you see dance, you, you know, it's nice to have a balance of male and female dancers. And I think Lau Kar Lung will will take that approach. And in this, you see it mainly through the Kara Hui character. It's just that her character is, you know, it, there aren't multiple female characters of importance, but her character is very important. You know, yeah, probably she's, more important she's than well developed. Yeah. She has a lot of really cool fight scenes. There's, there's two scenes, like there's the one, her first fight scene where, where she's fighting the other assassin uh, in the attic. Yeah. <laughs> and they're acting like a cat and a dog that are fighting up there because people are hearing their commotion. And like one of the inn people who's in charge of that is like, oh, it's probably a stupid cat that lives up there. And so uh, the guy is like, meow. And she's like, squeak, squeak. And they keep fighting, and it's wonderful. And then they they, they do something similar when they're in the uh, the narrow alleyway, uh, when they they take their fight vertically because they they kind of like scale up the walls, and they their conversation continues in that vertical dimension. And then um, and uh, then uh, the uh, the other assassin uh, Titian is walking underneath of them, and like he notices that like there's a lot of laundry that's drying and dripping on him, and like the spot where they are, they tore the laundry down. So he notices it's not dripping, and so she starts spitting on his hat. Yeah. <laughs> and like, what a wonderful scene! And she like, she's in the whole movie. She's extraordinarily well developed. She gets a lot of really good scenes like that that are very memorable. Loved it. There's, there's Absolutely a, loved it. A lot of very good physical comedy in this movie. Yes, surprising, uh-huh. surprisingly funny and effective physical comedy. Which, yeah. well, that like, translates. That translates across cultures. The physical stuff. You know, somebody somebody getting whacked in the in the head with a board is always funny if it's done right. It you know, Un- unless your culture has like an extreme taboo on that, on that for some reason. Uh, head whacking, yeah. very shameful. Yeah. <laughs> to the pillory with you. Yeah. All right. So moving into the gaming discussion here, um, one thing that leapt out at me is that this. So again, this is not my favorite thing in the world. I've complained on. I think on this podcast, and if not this one, the ones that I've done with Adam, uh, about this very thing. In in third edition, the way that adventures were often structured were around encounters. You had sort of the encounter level, and you know you were encouraged back in the 2000s during the D20 boom to structure all of your adventures around the different encounter ratings and the different encounter levels. So you'd have like a you know this the first several encounters might might be like a little bit below the party levels actual level and then a little bit above and then equal you know you might there are different ways of sort of making it work and i you still honestly, actually see that in fifth edition with the whole adventuring day paradigm which i mean if you ignore that D fifth still runs fine but yeah. it's 
It's a design structure that is a, an underpinning assumption of a lot of modern D&D stuff yeah. since they're done. Yeah, and I have to say, I really did not like it. It was one of the things I didn't yep. like about third edition. But that said, this movie, I thought, would lend itself very well to that sort of format. Like, you you, you have, like, the Gordon Liu character, who's obviously one of the more powerful uh, figures in the, in the film. Uh, you know, he would be, if not the big bad, you know, like the 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 you know the the, the high uh, encounter level uh, event, uh, but then you have the other guys like the Alexander Fushung characters, fairly minor, um, you know. So he might be you know a much lower sort of encounter level. So I thought I thought uh, I thought just in terms of you know doing sort of a D twenty wuxia type campaign, it might be really effective uh, for that format because the whole movie does feel a lot like it's structured around these different fights. And and granted, that might not play out as well over the course of a of a of a role playing game where the characters are able to uh, sort of move around that stuff, um, which was which was which was for me what I always found to be the difficulty of that structure um, mm. because it's hard to do without railroading. Um, but uh, but if you are going to have planned encounters, this movie would maybe be a good one to to sort of you know look to. As a as a offering some potential resources. Yeah, I, I concur with that. I mean, like, I, I like you don't like the uh, the sort of railroady structure of a planned encounter. Like, I feel like it, even if it's not your intention, you tend to kind of push all player choice outcomes towards your predetermined idea of when they should encounter what and when and where and all of that. And I, I prefer those things to kind of organically happen in a game that has a, has a, a looser structure without that. But were I to be the first model of, of GM prepper, I would definitely look to this movie. Because, like you said, it has clearly scaled encounters of lower difficulty going to higher difficulty. And another thing it has is a lot of texture in the encounters. I don't know about texture earlier. It has a very impressive stealth encounter. There are social encounters. There are encounters with hazards, like in the outhouse. Yep. Uh, there are encounters with a lot of unique elements, uh, like the the different weapon tricks and the different kind of Taoist magic with the with the puppets. We didn't get into too much, uh, but all of those things are are fascinating. And like I feel like you don't part part of the artificiality of the first kind of prepping, that kind of railroad type type of prepping, is the the idea that you as a GM should be kind of orchestrating and controlling for maximum fun. Like okay, yeah. so. It, in the context of it being a movie, the, the stealth encounter happening in the top roof of that inn was pitch perfect. I mean, it was two characters that were really good at stealth, they were really good fighters, it had a really good pacing. That that encounter happening in another place wouldn't have been as satisfying. Yeah. Because it's, it's just, the whole conceit of that scene is that it will be as fun as possible for an audience. In a role-playing game, though, because you are playing the game... I think that encounter would have been satisfying happening on rooftops or happening in a sewer or happening in all kinds of different places, even a very unexpected place, like at the crowded inn they went to. Like, what if it had been happening in broad daylight and they were fighting yeah. between the patrons in a way that was trying to, you know, push suspicion away from themselves as combatants, but they still had the same stakes? Like, I couldn't have anticipated that as a GM, but it could have manifested that way. Yeah. And I think that you can probably take the, the idea of a stealth encounter and those things and just kind of code that into a rival assassin. Like, okay, this guy is a stealthy assassin who has the opposite goal of one of the characters 
And you don't even have to put that on the railroad for that to manifest at some point in the game because eventually they will come into conflict with them. This guy's a skilled assassin. There will be a fight scene. But because you're not orchestrating the terms of when and, and where and all of that, it will organically happen in the game and still be just as awesome, just in a way you hadn't anticipated. Well, the, the, yeah, because they're all walking encounters. Like, they all have, like, uh, the Gordon Liu character, he's interesting no matter where and when that fight, you know, occurs mm. or the circumstances. He's got the Buddha box. He's got the, the cool, uh, the, 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 I think it was a staff that, uh, or a spear that had, like, a hidden blade in it. Um, he also had like a little like he shot blades out of the middle of it in two different directions at one point and I don't know if that was the staff or his hand or I like that, I thought that came out of the box but I, it could have been the staff I've always had trouble catching at that point. yeah I, I always have trouble catching where that's coming out of when I watch this um, I just watched it twice in a row and like, it looked like one scene there's his hand gripping the staff next scene his hand is off the staff and in two different directions in a direct parallel to the staff come the blades so I don't know if that was, like, it came from something in his palm, or if that was part of the staff, or if there was something else I missed that happened there. But, um, no, it's hard to catch. Um, but I, I think that kind of brings up another topic, which is sort of, you know, like, not just hidden devices, but cool surprises in combat, and the best way to execute them. One of the, the thing that I, I, I think the reason that these pay so much, uh, you know, they, they pay so many dividends when they actually... Uh, occur on screen is because you know that they were planned and you didn't you didn't you know and and either you were wondering about that box or something that was uh, that the guy was carrying around with him the whole time had this little hidden contraption in it Um, you know I I think when you're when you're introducing elements like that into a game one of the worst ways you can do it is on the fly like not on the fly like sometimes you have to at the start of it like sometimes encounters happen on the fly and you have to, mm. at the very beginning of the encounter, decide what is all this stuff about and what's going to happen. Like, what, what, is the, what, is, what, what kind of weaponry does this guy use? What kind of spells does he have? Or whatever whatever mm. game you're using, you have to decide those things. But I think if, yeah. you, if you do it as sort of an on-the-fly invention in that moment, then it loses a lot of its punch. So if you well, just... I, oh, I, I agree. But the point I want to bring up about that, especially in relation to this movie and in relation to creating NPCs for characters, is that... All of his tricks and traps, his exploding Buddha statue backpack and his like hidden knives and his staff and all that, those reveal something about his character and the way he is in the world to the players in the audience. So when you're making a character, when you're prepping it, like you're prepping a spell list, you're prepping his tricks, that should inform something about that character's psychology. And that way, through playing the game and dealing with those tricks and traps and seeing them manifest in the game's actual playing the players are being kind of subtly informed about this guy's psychology. That was impressive in the movie, and something you can pull off very easily in a game, if you're not doing it on the fly like you're describing, if you're preparing it as a part of that character. Well, even if you are doing it on the fly, you just need to establish some basic things. This guy is really meticulous and plans for everything. And so if you know that about a character, uh, you know, you can... Again, it depends on how much flexibility a system has, but I always feel like you, with devices like that, the GM really has a lot of leeway. You, can, you know, the GM can be like, okay, this box, you know, if it goes flying, here's the here's the damage that it does, or here's you know how that attack works. It's it's fairly easy. In fact, I've actually, oddly enough, I find I sometimes get the most bang for my buck with this stuff when I am doing it on the fly and I write the note to myself before the encounter starts because I'm not constrained by 
the normal restrictions of the system. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I got to get it on paper right there and then, and I don't have time to go sifting through the books and comparing damage and, and doing all these things that I might otherwise do. And, well, that, and... that comparison should be as easy as possible. I mean, that's why I did the effect charts like I did, because, like, I want... I, I, like you, want GMs to be able to kind of intuitively say, I want this to happen, yep. and then if it becomes something of, that's a kind of a tactical center point for a battle, that's when you can crack out the book and go like, okay, but what are the, how would this interact with the system? And all that has to kind of make sense. But it's not going to in every game system. Like, in, in some yes. games, it depends on what system you're running. Uh, but what I find is, regardless, I because I'm not thinking those thoughts when I'm I because I, I, I have like what two seconds to come up with this concept yeah, I'm not gonna yeah, you know fine. so it makes things a little bit more all over the map and you sometimes get you know results that are really weak sometimes you get results that results that are considerably larger than you might normally throw at the party but it's it the end result is it's surprising you know it's uh um but again I, I do think the important thing is if you are doing this on the fly at least for me i mean everybody's different but for me i like to have that stuff hammered out before the bef like the moment i create something that's what i want it to i want to sort of establish it and i want it to have uh, a, a consistency and a concrete reality that feels real you know from that point on so that so that if the box on the back of the guy's robes you know, flies off and attacks them or explodes into a million pieces and hits them with shrapnel, uh, that they feel like that was that was there the whole time, not that I just sort of triggered it in that moment and, and came up with it in that moment. So I so so even if it's an on the fly encounter, I'm gonna establish that in my in my notes to myself, in my notepad, uh, you know, box that explodes. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have something to make it concrete. And I'll have probably some die mechanics next to it. Yeah, I, I think that helps uh, go along with the uh, the kind of general philosophy of you as a GM aren't really adversarial to the players, but their foes should be adversarial to their characters. Because yeah. like I feel like if I'm on the flying it and like because some part of me wants to challenge the players, like I feel like I skew too much towards over challenging them, and so like if I if I have a character that has already been established and I've already got it written down. I don't have to worry about that. I can just yeah. say, okay, this I'm going to play this character intelligently and capably, and if he doesn't have what it takes to beat them, then he failed. Yep. And that was this challenge they overcame. And it's not me kind of artificially inflating the challenge to make it harder on them, which is something I'm, I'm very guilty of. My wife actually was getting on to me about that yesterday. She was like, stop doing that. Just oh. let the things be the things. Oh, so you, you, you increase the, 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 cha the yeah. challenge on the fly to Matt. Yeah, that's tricky. Cause, well, here's the thing that's tricky about that. Not every player group agrees on what the best way to go about that is. I've mm. been in groups where players have complained to me that you, you do not scale encounters appropriately to the party. You know, sometimes the mar monsters are too weak, sometimes they're too strong. And part of that, you know, I don't like doing that. I, 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 I hate when games make me do that. And so my natural impulse is to sort of rebel against it. And yeah, the uh, fate is really bad about doing that. Like in other narrative systems are like, it will be as challenging as it needs to be. And I'm just like, I want it to be as challenging as it is. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my preference. That, but the thing is people are very divided on that. So I don't think it's as simple <laughs> as saying you should always do X or you should always do Y. Cause I've had bad games that resulted from me mismatching my style with a group of players who really wanted it. They expected it to all be matched kind of like what you, yeah. you were adapting to the thing. So so Our team is going to be playing to the crowd, you know. Sometimes people expect something that's out of your comfort zone, and you've just got to kind of roll with that. 
Well, you know what it is? I, I think GMing is a lot like being a stand-up comic. And, you know, if you're a stand-up comic, sometimes you end up in, like, some city where people just don't get the kind of humor that you normally do. And you have to, you have to adapt. It's still your humor, but you have to adapt it to that group. Um, but what I, what I like to do now is I usually will tell people in advance, this is how I do things, you know, and I'll make it very clear to them. You know, like this is so, you know, you know, so they know, OK, this is the potential lethality of an encounter. This is the encounters aren't necessarily uh, sculpted to your party level. Do you know what I mean? Because 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 a lot of players yeah. do expect that. And, and yeah, so you can be both overt with that and that you can just tell them that as players like, hey, I don't I don't modulate the encounter. So you can encounter something that's more dangerous than you'd expect. And I expect you as a player to like take kind of my cues and respond to that appropriately or else you might get eaten by a dragon. Um, and you can do that subtly. Like, a way I like doing that subtly in most of my Dungeons & Dragons campaigns is I'll put a really powerful dragon in the starting dungeon, like in one of the layers of that dungeon. And if the players happen across it, like, there's this giant pile of gold with this clearly indestructible monster on it. And that sort of, like, again, it's sort of appealing to that monkey brain of theirs where they, they sort of intuit how much danger that is. I've had a lot of players uh, kind of just break character right there, and they're just like, wait, whoa, that thing is like a CR-17. What is it doing in this starting dungeon? And that's when I can just be really frank with them. Like, well, my style is such that you could reasonably encounter that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't steal that gold. I'm not saying you shouldn't go and get into a riddle contest with that dragon or something. Bilbo did, you know, and he got out of it more or less okay. But, like, please understand that there is an actual risk of your character's mortality here. You could die. Um, And, like, really, that... That alone has has allowed a lot of people who would be very resistant to my style to give it a genuine try and, and actually, by trying it, see that it offers a flavor that they enjoy. Maybe it's not their preferred style even, but they're like, okay, that's that's a viable style. I like that, as, as much as I like being in a campaign with any skilled dungeon master. Now, another thing that left out at me uh, is the whole family rules concept. At the end of the movie, uh, when he has the big duel, he has to shave his mustache, and he explains that our family has a rule that you have to shave before a, a, a lethal duel or something to that effect. And, yeah, it's a really weird little rule. Well, you encounter that a lot in these movies and in these books. Um, and, and there's another La Carlung movie, My Young Auntie, which I just mentioned, where, where they talk about they actually have a book of the family rules, and I think 14 Amazons does something similar. Uh, and it, it often comes up, if, especially if you're watching a drama series, the family rule is often introduced as a way around a plot complication. Do you know what I mean? Like, like ah, I just remembered there's a rule that our family has that, you know, and, and it, it'll, it'll either help eliminate a complication that just arose or introduce a new one sometimes. Um, but I, I like that. I like that there's this, this idea, and, I, and I'm, it's, it's not something that I know a whole lot about, but, it, but, but, I, but, I, but, it, but it, it's like a cultural feature where you could have yeah, like a... Um, I imagine it's an outgrowth of Confucianism because Confucianism was very much like the moral center of the universe is being a good member of your own family and any outgrowth, any government system is an outgrowth of that. So the emperor is kind of the father yeah. to China kind of. And and so there's there's a strong entanglement of like almost religious morality as, as opposed, when it comes to familial relations. And I think that's probably just an outgrowth of that. Yeah, and to be honest, this family rule thing is not something I, 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 I've encountered a lot when I've read about the history, but, it, but I see it a lot in the movies. So I don't know the specific thing it refers to, but it's clearly some kind of a trope. And I think it's uh, something that can be interesting. And I, I was thinking of how would you, like, like number one, uh, 
you know, you, you sort of do it already when you have uh, when you have sex or organization in, in your group. You'll have rules that they'll have to abide by. But to have like this guy's family or this guy's clan has these very specific rules and specific punishments for the rules uh, can be interesting if you think enough about them in advance. And it, I think it can add something to the game. You could even do it as a table if you wanted to. You know, you could if you wanted That's to be more free form, you could have a random table to roll to see if there's any applicable rules to the situation. If you don't want to come up with a list of 40 rules or something. Actually, you should, you should do that if you don't already have that in Wandering Heroes, because I would use that in every freaking game. The whole, like, it's just a big 100-point list of family rule and potential punishment for it. Mm. And, like, in time a weird situation comes up, you could be like, okay, you know what? I don't know what, uh, something needs to be happening here. I'm rolling on the table. Okay, your family has this rule, and it's part of the ongoing fiction. You just recall, or your your Uncle Wu shows up, good old Uncle Wu, and he's like, well, don't forget the family rule about shaving the mustaches yeah. before the death duel. And you're just like, oh, right, that rule. We all knew about that. <laughs> No, I, I mean, it, it can be, it can, I think, um, you know, or like, you know, uh, it, it could come up too if like a character, like sort of out of Condor Heroes, if a character wants to marry uh, a character, uh, you know, and then they find out, oh no, that, 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 that guy's uh, family has this weird rule that you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to fight all four uncles before you can, <laughs> before, you know, there was something like that in uh, Temple of the Red Lotus, where they wanted to leave the, uh, the, the, the main character marries the, uh, uh, the heroine, and he well, he, and he moves in with the with the with the with his wife's family, and then he finds out some information about the father that makes him want to just leave. Like the father, you know, he, it's more complicated than this. But what he learns is that the father is the leader of a group of bandits or something, and so he's like, "We got to get out of here. We need to go." And I, I don't want to be among these people anymore. And the wife's like, "Okay, but my family has a rule that you have to fight your way out if you want to leave the house." And so it becomes this this uh, you know. A good portion of the movie is him and and the and the and the wife fighting the aunties because the fathers have all gone out on another task. So the the women of the householder are in charge of enforcing this rule as a result, and it, it's an interesting moment. And I, I think that that's sort of the way that you can incorporate these kinds of things into a uh, into a wuxia campaign or a kung fu campaign. Um, that is such a cool idea, man. I am in your debt. <laughs> Well, I, I've got to make that chart now. That is so cool. I think Temple of the Red Lotus is on Prime. If, and in fact, I should oh, mention... If I, I wrote that down, man. I'm, yeah. I'm watching that movie. It's, it's actually a trilogy. It's a trilogy. There's uh, Temple of the Red Lotus. It's the second trilogy you have t- you have pitched to me that I'm just like... There's, well, there's Argh. not that many trilogies, you know? So there's... um, uh, I, I think it's Temple of the Red Lotus, Twin Sword, and then Sword and the Loot. I can't remember exactly the titles of each film. But it's really cool because it's 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 a proper trilogy. It's a proper trilogy, and it's kind of nice getting that in the genre. Um, and it's it's also kind of a unique film series, I think. It, it has it came out early enough that it has a slightly different feel than some of the other things. Um, so so I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll do a trilogy. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk after the after the podcast. The, but the, the other thing I wanted to talk about, too, is I think that this movie would make a really cool adventure. Um, and number one, it would make a cool adventure on its own being set in this time and place. Like, you could set it during the Boxer Rebellion, and you could have all kinds of interesting adventures around that. But also just uh, just taking this idea and of there's a guy who broke away from some organization that the players are directly or peripherally attached to, and they get sent 
to either help him or hurt him or whatever, you know, but they don't know who else has been sent. You know, there's these other other people all converging on this one person. I think you could really make an interesting scenario out of that. Oh, yeah. And I think that the, the watchword for that is a shared but mutually exclusive goal. We all are trying to kill this guy. And the way you're introduced to the other assassins is through chance meeting. You know, you could even do that as a sort of encounter chart thing. You know, like what if if they're, you know, when when does this assassin show up? Is it is it this point? Is it this point? Yeah. My my scene my uh, my game scene structure is really conducive to that because it instead of moving through rooms, you move through time. Uh, in mine, okay. so like, so so yeah, you, it, and it's really it's identical to moving through rooms in D and D because in in D and D or classic RPGs, you go from room A to room B and yep. you get the content in that room. In this case, it's just a, a temporal version of that, where you're going from scene A to scene B, getting the content in scene B. Yeah, no. Uh, well, and also what you could do, like, one thing I would do is I would give them... Uh, I, I, I would have some kind of encounter chart, possibly, where everybody is assumed to have a faded connection. And and then that might be the core conceit of what the co- you know the coincidences are arising out of a, some kind of shared fate. But... Um, and, and oftentimes, if I if I have a very contained scenario like this, I will have an, a, a sort of a chart to roll on for all of the people that are involved to see if there's ever any people crossing paths and stuff like that. But I, but but another way to think of this one is sort of the rival party situation. You know, like a, now in this case, the rival party is kind of scattered, but you could definitely do it as a rival party scenario too. Um, I always have trouble pulling those off in games because I feel like I'm just playing my own version of D&D against the players, you know? Like, they have their party, I have my party. Well, you, you know, that, uh, I, I have a way to, to, to manage it. You get a map of either the... A map of the scenario or a map of the local area, and you get some pawn pieces to, to represent the different... You know, this is where the players are, and here's where my rival party is. That You know at all times. This So you're not doing the thing where it's like, oh, the rival party just happens to show up. You sort of actually tracking movements. You're tracking the movements, and you're sort of eyeballing how much information about the PCs is this other party actually able to get, and how would they be making their decisions? And you can sort of figure out, okay, if they're sufficiently informed, they might know the party's heading in that direction and try to cut them off. But maybe they won't. You know, if if you want, if you want it to feel like a um, a challenge that isn't just you sort of imposing your party on the player characters. If it's a little bit more uh, hit and miss, that can sometimes uh, reward player characters who make the right tactical and strategic choices in the scenario. Because yeah, and, and that brings it back to the game being the adversarial party, not the GM being the adversarial party. Yeah. Because it's not me determining when their rivals show up at a critical moment. It is like they are real things in the context of the universe and they're acting like they are that. And so players can through their own cleverness and their own use of the rules, you know, they they can cut them off of the pass, so to speak, or do yeah. ambushes or and they might get genuinely surprised and bushwhacked by the bad guys, but that's part of the the risk of that challenge, which I think is fine. And as as a really good texture. No, I, I agree. And, and and I also think that um when you when you do that, like like again, if the players if the players decide to go right to the city that they're obviously going to, uh, and then they and then and you know that the the enemy forces are going to be going there because they they're well informed, uh, 
that's that's a legitimate sort of outcome but it also leaves open the possibility if the players are, are cautious enough that they say hey wait we might have been leaving too much a trail of where we're going maybe maybe people know where we're heading and and so we're going to go this way instead or we're going to you know then they end up not having that encounter and yeah, i've had similar uh, similar things to that happen where the players will at the very last moment kind of change their plans and decide to go stealthy and one of the coolest, funnest things ever happened to some of my players was that they got to sneak up on the party who was waiting in ambush for yes. them. And that party was, like, talking to themselves, like, they're going to come this way. They, they have no match for us, blah, blah, blah. And the players are just like, this is awesome! Yeah, no, that's that's a great example. That's exactly the sort of thing I like to see in a game. And I, I think that players appreciate it, especially when it's done fairly and you haven't you haven't given it to them. When you've sort of... It, 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 that was a product of a choice they made. Yeah, you know I mean? absolutely. And and I think I think that's that's uh, where the players sort of number one, it, it taps into that part of us that sort of likes the 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 fun of the of the competition in the game of the sort of you, you know not not necessarily game in like a mechanical sense, but just in the sense of you know there's this scenario and yeah, they're competing with this other party. Yeah, yeah. Where you're you're actually overcoming. Not a challenge to your avatar so much as a challenge to you as a player, you know. And you're you're being rewarded for your cleverness as a player, and that's something that's satisfying about games, yeah, in and, a broad sense. And it, and it, and it's and it's earned. It's it's a properly earned one. It's not like you know that was going to happen no matter what. Um, you know, yeah, this, the, this isn't the this isn't the I sneak up on the rival scene. You yes. created that scene by being clever. It wouldn't yes. have existed without you. Yeah, that's. I mean, and again, I mean, you know, every everybody's different. But my 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 main gripe with with games is when I when I could if if the, if the game is such that I could just hand you my notes at the start and you would be able to read through them and see what was going to happen that night without much you know much variation, then I think that's not what I want to be doing. I, I, yeah, that's, I, the the charts seem more clinical, I think, but in a in a way they're actually a lot more organic as they as they show up at the table. You know, you just see a wandering monster chart, and you're like, "Oh, that's that's so scientific looking." But the way that manifests in a game is that I, as a GM, don't know if you're going to encounter the monsters on that chart. Yeah. You know, they're just wandering around this area, and how you deal with them is is something that happens based on the universe's laws, not mine. No, and that, and that gets into something that you know, the, the the GM being surprised. But but either way, I th- I think this movie would. There's all kinds of things you could you could draw on for this movie. Um, there's a lot. You know, trying to trying to find somebody who's in hiding. Um, you know the the you know just sickness rules like straight up sickness yeah. rules like the the guy is out of commission because he's sick that that was wonderful you know sickness rules in RPGs are great if they can carry them off well and it, uh, oh go ahead go ahead I I was just making a noise in my throat <laughs> but it's also it's an interesting backdrop for a small campaign you know that that I just think that there's a lot that you could you could get from a movie like this in terms of gaming um, but we actually are getting up to the end of this so uh do you have any any additional thoughts in terms of gaming the film or just any thoughts in general on on the movie oh let me see uh, i this movie gets a hearty recommendation from me with the understanding that you will probably have to watch it more than once to really suck the marrow out of it mm. but it's very worth the additional watchings uh it's it's entertaining just because of the fight choreography of nothing else but like it's there's a lot to appreciate in it as far as gaming stuff, I, I don't know, man. I think we covered it pretty well. And it shows that even a tightly plotted movie can be used to make something a little more hex-crawly and organic if you just think about it in the terms of translating it into events that happen in the game. 
instead of a script you're creating for the game. Yes, yeah, I would agree with that. And, uh, and I would also say, if you do watch this movie, it, it is available on Prime, so you can watch it there. It's the dub version, so, you know, I, I think it's I think with the subs, it's a little bit better, but one of the advantages of the dubs is that you can really pay attention to the action, and in this movie, that's something that you want to be doing. Uh, so I would, I would also say, if you watch this movie, the first time you watch it, pay close attention to the action sequences, because that's like the real... That's where a lot of the stuff is really happening, and and it can be easy to miss if you're. There are a lot of movements in this film that go by in the flick of an eye, and you can mm-hmm. you know you can just you can miss it. Uh, so so pay close attention and just maybe be a little bit patient with the movement from set piece to set piece because Lau Carlung does sort of establish a location and then kind of linger there for a little little bit. Um, oh yeah, you will be challenged as a Western viewer, so um, be prepared for that sort of like sort of unexpected challenge it's a real ninja of a movie in that regard what i what i would compare him to is the golden age of hollywood a lot of his films really have that kind of a vibe and he has a yeah there's a golden age vibe to it yeah and and so you have these set pieces and the way he uses them even feels like that so uh you know just kind of know that going in and and yeah so so we'll let you go and we'll be back hopefully next time we'll maybe be talking about brave archer or temple of the red lotus who knows um you know, we'll see what we can cover. And, uh, and yeah, so we'll talk to you later. Bye.